Welcome to the Placebo Magic Podcast, the podcast about theatrical spiritual practice for atheists. I'm your host, Durmak, the wizard and peasant lord of this vast ten-acre realm of Habdur, also known as Farm Code Gary, also known as Garrison Benson. Greetings, placebo mages. Today, we're going to look at Jesus through a lens of placebo magic. But first, I'd like to give a shout out to our newest Patreon backers, Ardent Dawn and Calico Dream. Thank you to our patrons at the producer level or above Kyle Fisher, Red Rum Soda Pop, Annie Wallach, Ash, Goon, H, Joshua C. Betts, and Tony Wolf. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon, head to patreon.com slash placebomagic. That's magic with a CK at the end. By supporting the show at $1 per month, you'll gain access to the back catalog of Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes, as well as the forbidden Patreon chambers of the Discord server. In our most recent bonus episode, we explore how the concept of a circle of influence, as described in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, can help focus our magical practice. Come join the discussion on the Placebo Mages Guildhall Discord server. Check out the show notes for your invite link. So this is an episode that I've been meaning to do from the very beginning. The first episode of this podcast still gets the most listens, and the part of that episode that I get the most feedback about is when I discussed Jesus' three temptations in the desert, interpreting them as the inevitable thought patterns of someone hallucinating and delusional while fasting for an extended period of time in the desert, temptations to delude himself and manipulate others. Anyway, I've procrastinated making this episode because the topic feels so fraught. I've been afraid of not doing it justice. Jesus means a lot of different things to different people, and for the many people who feel like Christianity caused them harm, the very name and image of Jesus can conjure up that harm through sympathetic magic, even if Jesus himself didn't have much to do with it. But I guess I just need to take a swing at this topic. I'm sure this won't be the last word on Jesus. If you have been hurt by Christianity, if the name of Jesus makes you feel angry or afraid, then pause the episode here and before you press play again, cast a magic circle of protection around yourself and your listening device, and within that circle, listen to the rest of the episode while knitting, coloring, or just mindfully observing your feelings. I think that this episode could provide an opportunity for transformation through meaning-making, but it may be important to create a sacred space first. So, are we ready? Then let's continue. In the secular and atheist world, Jesus has been touted as an icon of economic leftism or even anarcho-pacifism. But many important aspects of Jesus are ignored. His healing and miracle working, his preaching about the kingdom of heaven, his beliefs about the coming judgment, and his apparent belief that he was the prophesied Messiah. Besides teaching us to love our neighbor and care for the poor, I think Jesus has a lot to teach us about magic and ritual if we read the Gospels in that light. Very little is known for certain about the historic Jesus beyond the fact that he existed and that he was crucified, and I'm certainly not an expert by any stretch. I'm going to walk through the story of Jesus as a hypothetical history, telling a story that could have happened in the real world, but colored through my own interpretation. But first we need a basic overview of the texts. Jesus' story is told four times in the canonical Bible, attributed to four different authors. These four books are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and are the first four books of the New Testament. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Of these, the book of Mark was most likely written first, 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death. The books of Matthew and Luke used the book of Mark as a source. The remaining canonical gospel, the book of John, was written last, and it's by far the most poetic and the most theologically opinionated book in the four. I think the Gospel of John is probably the least historically accurate by a wide margin, especially in terms of the things that Jesus actually says. The author clearly had a theological agenda and clearly put words into Jesus' mouth to support it. Nevertheless, it's probably my favorite book of the four. There are also many apocryphal Gospels, mostly written after the four canonical Gospels within the first and second centuries. But today we're going to focus on what's presented in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So let's start with Jesus' birth, the nativity story. I do love the Christmas story as a myth. The notion of a king and messiah being literally born in a barn is mythopoetic gold. The story doesn't appear at all in the Gospel of Mark, the earliest gospel to be written, and I would not be surprised if it's almost entirely fictional. Except for one key aspect. While Mary was engaged to Joseph, she got pregnant with someone else's baby. And this was semi-public knowledge because Joseph's friends told him not to go through with the wedding. Joseph decided to go through with it, and I think it's totally plausible that an angel told him to in a dream. Perhaps Mary really was faithful and pure of heart, and her pregnancy was not of her choosing at all. This was a culture where women were often blamed for the moral failings of men, but perhaps Joseph was better than that and knew that Mary's essence couldn't be tainted by someone else's bad decisions that were forced upon her. Now, I hate this term because I don't think anyone should be defined by the circumstances of their birth, but to highlight the poetry in the story, I'm going to use the word. Bastard. Throughout his childhood, there must have been adults whispering it, whispering about his parentage when they thought he was asleep. Huh? Dad's not my real father? If Joseph isn't my true father, then who is? The equivalent term in Aramaic must have echoed in his head throughout his formative years. Bastard. A little later, we'll circle back to the probably fictional nativity story that we hear about at Christmas time, and where it might have come from. But for now, let's fast forward to when Jesus was 30-ish. There was a strange, fiery preacher out in the desert called John the Baptist. John the Baptist dressed in animal skins and lived off of insects and wild honey. John preached about a coming wrath because of all the greed and injustice in his society. Not unlike the warnings we hear nowadays about the coming climate disasters caused by our greed. Some people who came to see John thought they were already good with God simply because they happened to be descendants of Abraham, God's chosen ethnicity. John told them that that wasn't going to cut it. God doesn't give a crap about your ethnicity. If you don't bear good fruit, kindness, and compassion, then you'll be destroyed. People asked John how to be saved, and he preached that if you have two coats and your neighbor has none, then you should give one of your coats to your neighbor. Likewise with food. Now, in this society, tax collection was outsourced to the private sector, and it was standard practice for tax collectors to swindle people out of their money. Some of these white-collar criminals came out to the desert to hear John preach, and they asked him what they could do to get right by God. Likewise, just how police today use civil asset forfeiture to steal from innocent motorists, the soldiers of the day regularly extorted money and favors from people through threats and false accusations. Some of them asked John what they could do to be saved. He told these tax collectors and soldiers to be content with the amount of money that they're supposed to make. People flocked to John because they felt tainted by their wrongdoing. Deep down, they felt like they were fundamentally broken people, twisted and tainted beyond salvation. So John performed a ritual to magically purify them of their past wrongdoing, dunking them in a river. That way they were freed of those unhelpful beliefs about themselves. They could move forward, growing and changing and bearing good fruit. 
By the way, John the Baptist is probably my favorite figure in the entire Bible. I admire him, but also like Henry David Thoreau or Wendell Berry, I feel a personal kinship to him. John the Baptist was a dirty hippie living in the wilderness and desperately eager to save a sick society from itself. Like Thoreau, like Wendell Berry, and I hope a little bit like me. Also, as a side note, according to the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus, some kind of cousin. The other Gospels don't mention this. Scholars believe this is not likely to be historically accurate, though I have no idea why anybody would make this up. I, have, I don't know what it actually adds to the story. Anyway, Jesus had been working as a carpenter with his adoptive dad, Joseph. But one day, Jesus the Bastard went out to hear John the Baptist preach. Jesus decided he needed that purification ritual for himself. Maybe he'd grown up always feeling a little tainted and shamed. So John dunked Jesus the Bastard into the Jordan River and somebody else came back up. Jesus looked up to the sky and saw a vision. The heavens opened up like a magic portal, and the Spirit of God flew down in the shape of a dove and landed on his shoulder. He heard a voice from the heavens saying, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. To paraphrase, the voice told him, Jesus, you've spent your whole life, 30 years, ashamed of something that wasn't your fault. You've been wondering who your real father is. Well, I'm your real father. You are my son, and I love you just as you are. The text says that John initially didn't want to baptize Jesus because he felt like Jesus should be the one baptizing him. This may be a retcon to justify the theological notion that Jesus was without sin. But perhaps John and Jesus already knew each other, and John believed that Jesus was the better man by far. Anyway, after having this religious experience, Jesus was hungry for more, so he went into the desert to fast for an extended period. The text says 40 days and 40 nights, but that's probably a poetic flourish, a callback to the Old Testament. Anyway, in the desert, the devil started tempting Jesus. It's hard to say whether these were hallucinations or whether Jesus just described the experience that way after the fact as a metaphor. I think he probably was losing his mind, but we'll get back to that later. First, the devil tempted Jesus by saying, So, you really think you're the son of God, huh? I doubt it. You're human garbage and you know it. Bastard, if you really are the son of God, prove it by turning those rocks into bread. I know you're hungry enough. Of course, Jesus didn't actually have the power to turn rocks into bread, but at least some part of his mind thought that he could. So the real temptation here is the temptation to eat rocks. Jesus answered the devil, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on the word of God. Now, I believe that the word word here is the Greek word logos, which can mean word, but it's much more than that. This book I'm currently reading, Useful Delusions by Shankar Vedantam, says the following, the ancient Greeks used to describe two very different ways of thinking, logos and mythos. Logos referred to the world of the logical, the empirical, the scientific. Mythos referred to the world of dreams, storytelling, and symbols. So you could paraphrase Jesus' response like this. You know, Satan, I'm really hungry, but I'm also spiritually hungry, and that's what I'm doing here. I choose to satisfy my hunger with the reason and logic of God rather than with rocks. For the next temptation, the devil guided Jesus back into the city where Jesus climbed up to the top of a tall building. The devil said, Hey, bastard, if you were really the son of God, you could jump off of this building and God would send some angels to come save you. Jesus responded, As it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, I got nothing to prove to you. Nice try, but you're not goading me into killing myself by jumping off a building. At this point, the devil, that twisted part of Jesus' psyche, thought to itself, Huh. This guy's not as worthless as I thought. He's lost his marbles, sure, but he has a lot of charisma and apparently unlimited confidence. We could use that. So the devil showed Jesus a vision of all the kingdoms of the world, all their riches and splendor. And the devil said, 
All this can be yours if you just make me your master. And Jesus replied, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus echoes this sentiment later in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that you can't serve both God and money. Instead of following the twisted, resentful, misanthropic inner voice that had called Jesus a bastard his whole life, Jesus chose to follow the inner voice that called him a beloved son. For better or worse, this voice also told him that he was the Messiah. It's not clear if it started in the desert or at some earlier point in time, but Jesus seems to have had religious paranoia and delusions of grandeur, believing that he was not merely a child of God, but the child of God, the chosen one of prophecy, the Jewish Messiah. This is pretty much a textbook category of delusion. Jesus wasn't the first, and he certainly wasn't the last. But he was one of the best delusional messiahs in human history. After overcoming these temptations, at this point the text says that the angels came and ministered to Jesus. I think he probably hallucinated these as well. After breaking through the temptations, he experienced the sublime euphoria that follows a spiritual breakthrough. Now, John the Baptist had attracted a large following, and by speaking out against the rich and powerful, he'd put a target on his back. So he was thrown in jail to shut him up. Later on, John was decapitated by King Herod, whom John had openly criticized. Meanwhile, Jesus started sharing his spiritual insights, teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath, interpreting the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus had remarkable charisma, remarkable kindness and compassion, remarkable wisdom and insight, and most stunningly, he spoke with authority. The Gospels say this again and again. The crowds were astonished because he spoke with authority. He didn't cushion his language with phrases like, I think, or, but that's just my opinion. He didn't carry himself like a bastard. He strode around like a prince, even though he was dirty and poorly dressed and constantly hanging out with lowly, broken people. Everywhere Jesus went, he turned heads and attracted followers. Thus, his self-esteem continued to skyrocket, just like any celebrity during the rise to stardom. I've been watching the Disney Plus series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and that show explores how when you get injected with the super soldier serum, it magnifies your personality and makes you more of yourself. You inject the prideful Johann Schmidt with super soldier serum, and he becomes the Hitler-esque supervillain, the Red Skull. You inject the courageous and pure of heart weakling Steve Rogers with a super soldier serum, and he becomes a Captain America whose virtue far outshines the country he's named after. Quincy Jones said that fame is similar. If you're mean-spirited, then fame will magnify your meanness. If you're good in your heart, then fame will multiply your goodness. So Jesus first received a huge injection of self-confidence when he received the revelation that he was the beloved Son of God. Then he received a massive injection of adoration from his followers. Jesus must have been a deeply kind and compassionate person because when he was jacked up on self-esteem, he chose to go out and help people. Now, there was something unusual about Jesus' teachings. Instead of using one of the conventional names for the Hebrew God, a God who was distant, impersonal, and incorporeal, Jesus spoke of a heavenly Father. It wasn't totally unheard of to describe God metaphorically as a Father, the Father of creation, but as far as I can figure out in my limited research capacity, it seems that the way that Jesus spoke of and spoke to the Father was a theological innovation inspired by the vision he saw after his baptism and by Jesus' belief that he was the Son of God. You could think of the Father as Jesus' imaginary friend and the secret to his self-confidence. There's a trope in fiction that I like to call the secret friend trope, when a character has a secret friend who's helping them miraculously breeze through every challenge. An example would be the first How to Train Your Dragon movie. When Hiccup befriends Toothless, Suddenly, Hiccup begins to ace his dragon hunting training because he has access to hidden wisdom. You could say the same about Jesus. Everyone in that society had access to this distant, incorporeal, judgmental, and 
wrathful imaginary friend called Yahweh, but Jesus had the Father. That was the secret to his magical power. The word was rapidly spreading about Jesus, and he returned to Nazareth, where he had been raised, where people had maybe treated him differently because of the shame of his birth. He went to the synagogue, and he stood up to read, and they handed him a scroll from the book of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled this scroll and searched through it for a specific passage, which he read aloud. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus simply rolled up the scroll and sat back down. Everyone stared at him in stunned silence. Finally, he said to them, I'm paraphrasing here, consider that scripture fulfilled. And some in the crowd said, Ah, come on, that's just Joseph's boy. We grew up with him. He's not special. He's a nobody. At this, Jesus started ranting, explaining essentially that he certainly wasn't the first prophet to be rejected in their time or in their hometown. Just like the United States, Israel and Judea had a history of executing or assassinating the people who boldly spoke out against injustice and then celebrating them generations later. The crowd in the synagogue changed into an angry mob and chased him up to the top of a cliff so they could throw him off. But somehow he managed to escape by sneaking through the crowd, perhaps a bit of glamour magic to make himself more inconspicuous. Jesus continued traveling and preaching and attracted a following. He recruited a circle of disciples simply by walking up to them and telling them to leave their jobs and families and follow him to help change people's lives for the better. It sounds crazy because it is crazy. But put yourself in their shoes. Imagine if a wildly popular celebrity with a reputation for overwhelming kindness and compassion showed up at your front door and said, I have a job for you. Are you busy? At this point, Jesus' family thought he was literally out of his mind, and they tried to round him up and bring him back home. Some of the religious teachers thought he was possessed by a demon. Clearly, something about Jesus suggested that he had a few screws loose. His family tried to come collect him a second time, and Jesus said, Who are my mother and brothers? Then he gestured at his crowd of adoring followers. Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Though Jesus' crowds of followers seemed to perpetuate his delusions, he did make a point of routinely escaping the crowds to focus on prayer and meditation, either alone or with a few close friends. If this practice didn't keep him grounded in reality, I think it at least did keep him grounded in his values of love and compassion and humility and love for his enemies. So Jesus began healing people and casting out demons. Let's examine this a bit through a placebo magic lens. While Jesus is generally celebrated among secular progressives for his teaching about giving to the needy, his healing is either ignored or assumed to be totally fictional. I think it's extremely likely that Jesus did heal many people via the placebo effect. I think it's also likely that the stories became more and more exaggerated as they spread by word of mouth. Faith healing is a pretty well-documented phenomenon to this day. Some of the healings are relatively legit. The body did the healing, but the placebo effect helped eliminate any psychological roadblocks like stress. In other cases, somebody thinks they're healed instantly, but the illness comes back later. Sometimes a placebo can help manage an illness, for instance by reducing pain, without actually healing it. And some conditions simply can't be dealt with through placebo. You're not going to regrow your arm. You have to keep in mind, too, that in a pre-scientific society rife with superstition, afflictions caused by the nocebo effect, the negative version of the placebo effect, may have been much more commonplace, and those would be prime targets for faith healing. At some point, I remember hearing on NPR about a woman with dissociative identity disorder, and one of her multiple personalities was blind. Her eyes actually exhibited some of the physiological signs of blindness. She really was not seeing anything, but when she switched to a different personality, she saw normally. 
So with that in mind, it's totally within the realm of possibility that Jesus healed one or two blind people. Compared to healing physical ailments, casting out demons is a more straightforward. Demonic possession can be connected with certain mental illnesses, such as dissociative identity disorder, but it's also a phenomenon shaped by cultural factors. For instance, in 1972, there were very few purported cases of demonic possession in the United States. In 1973, the number suddenly skyrocketed, and mental hospitals were awash with demon-possessed patients. What happened to cause that spike? The movie The Exorcist was released, putting the idea of demonic possession into the heads of people with poor mental health who were already highly suggestible. People who are suggestible enough to become possessed by a demon as a result of believing that that is a real possibility are probably also suggestible enough to have said demon cast out from them by a traveling preacher with an almost superhuman charisma score. Sometimes Jesus healed people simply by laying his hands on them, but other times he took a more theatrical approach, like he might spit in the dirt to make mud and rub it onto a blind man's eyes. At one point, a Roman centurion, an officer in charge of a hundred soldiers, sent messengers to Jesus to ask him to heal his sick servant. But before Jesus arrived, the centurion sent more messengers telling Jesus, Don't trouble yourself to come all the way to my house. I'm not worthy of you entering my home. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I understand authority. I command a hundred soldiers. When I say go, they go. When I say come, they come. So I know that you don't actually have to come to my house and lay hands on my servant. You just have to say the word. Jesus was amazed at this centurion's understanding of magic. To put this in my own words, the trappings and paraphernalia of your magic spells don't really matter. What matters is your authority. The trappings are there to provide authority, but over time as you level up as a wizard, you won't have as much need for them, because you'll truly believe that the power doesn't come from the specific actions you take in ritual. It comes from you. Likewise, often when Jesus healed people, he told them, your faith has made you well. Though I certainly don't think Jesus was a skeptical atheist, he had a deep intuitive understanding of magic, and he understood that the belief that the healing would work was the most important part. Belief comes from authority. The more authority you command, the more belief you can command, and thus the more powerful the placebo. On that note, Jesus also sent out followers to travel without him. These followers found that they could perform miracles simply by invoking Jesus' name. He told them, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, yes, you have power, but don't get drunk with power. Focus on doing good things. There were even some people doing magic by his authority without his knowledge, but he didn't seem to have a problem with it. It's important to note, too, that when Jesus healed people, he also told them that their sins were forgiven. Just like how John the Baptist cleansed people of their sins in the Jordan River. Besides lifting an emotional burden, this would also help to take stress off of the body and make it more likely to continue to heal. Having their sins forgiven would also, I believe, make it easier to change their behavior. Our behavior tends to be formed by our beliefs about ourselves. If you think you're a bad person, a broken person, then you may not actually believe that you can change. When people came to Jesus willing to be changed, he told them that their sins were forgiven, clearing the slate so they could believe it was possible to become good. If you want to hear more about that idea, go back to Season 1, Episode 4 of this podcast, the episode called Protection and Purification. Now, obviously, some of the miracles attributed to Jesus are simply outside the realm of possibility in the material world. But there is a surprising amount of gray area. For instance, there's a story in which Jesus calms a storm. He rebuked the wind and waves, and they ceased. This could very well have happened in actual history, but without any actual causal link between the two events just a coincidence. I think Jesus was probably delusional enough to attempt it, and all storms end sooner or later. 
It may be that after Jesus rebuked the storm, it took several minutes to end, but the story became exaggerated through word of mouth. Anyway, suffice it to say, we don't have time in this episode to break down every single story and every single teaching of Jesus, but I do want to delve into a few that I think are interesting from a placebo magic standpoint. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. On this podcast, we talk a lot about imaginary worlds and astral planes. Think of the kingdom of heaven as an imaginary world. If you feel like you need, say, a McMansion in a fancy subdivision in order to feel good about yourself, then instead of buying one in the real world, build one in heaven. If you feel like you need a huge collection of Lord of the Rings memorabilia or rare art pieces, then instead of buying them in the real world and then having to worry about them getting stolen or damaged, visualize your priceless collectibles and store them in this McMansion in heaven. If you feel like you need a trophy wife to feel good about yourself, marry an imaginary woman and have her move into your heavenly McMansion. If you feel like you need a certain job title or an Academy Award to feel good about yourself, then win those things in the kingdom of heaven, in your imagination. For so many of the things that we buy and hoard and fret over here in the material plane, we're only really interested in their magical properties, not so much in the thing itself. So there's no point in hoarding the physical items and these successes. Just hoard imaginary versions of them and your mansion in heaven. And then whenever you feel insecure, visualize that place where your riches lie safe and sound. Sooner or later, you'll figure out that you don't really need those things to feel good about yourself, and the symbols of your self-worth will become more and more benign. But whenever you need it, you can always tap into the wealth of this kingdom, this magical land where you are a prince or princess, a blessed child of God, entitled to all the wealth of the kingdom. In the book of Luke, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is within you. And he says that you must be born again, becoming like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a child's spirit, a child's imagination, to become an inhabitant of the kingdom of heaven and build the basis of your self-worth there. You could also interpret storing treasure in heaven to mean becoming a better person, building wealth by improving the working of your mind. I'm an avid gardener and I'm always looking to improve my soil, and I also have all kinds of wild schemes to improve my house and land, building wealth here in the material plane. But in the words of the farmer poet Wendell Berry, the finest growth that farmland can produce is a careful farmer. In other words, becoming a better person is more valuable than anything else a farm can produce. To gradually rewire your own brain over time, becoming more compassionate and understanding, more patient and humble and grateful, that is the greatest kind of wealth you can possibly build, and no thieves or natural disasters can take that away. So when the super-rich stash their money in the Cayman Islands to protect it from taxation, or build high-tech bunkers to avoid being eaten by poor people, they're doing it all wrong. And that leads us to the very next passage in the Sermon on the Mount. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What this means is that you change your heart and change your life by changing the way you look at the world. Look for things to be grateful for. Find meaning in everything, no matter how painful or chaotic. Cherish the company of simple people and poor people and sinners, even Republicans. Find opportunities in failure. Notice the sublime beauty in everyday things. Find the sublime pleasure in simple vegetarian foods. Find luxury and nobility in simple clothing. Don't take life too seriously. When you transform your sight, your body and your life fill up with light. This is the deeper meaning of restoring sight to the blind. In Walden, Henry David Thoreau writes, 
It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue, and so to make a few objects beautiful, but it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. Later on in the sermon, Jesus says that a wise man builds his house on a rock, but a foolish man builds his house on a sand. When wind and rain and floodwaters come, the house on the rock still stands, but the house on the sand falls. I'm reminded of something from the self-improvement book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F. The author Mark Manson says that you shouldn't set your main life goals based on external circumstances like owning a home or getting a boyfriend or getting a particular job because those kinds of goals are subject to forces outside yourself. Instead, he says your top goals should be virtues, kindness, focus, determination, patience, compassion, good humor, understanding, perspective. That's building your house on the rock. No matter what happens to you, nobody can take those away from you. As much as I like those interpretations, and I I do think they're pretty close to what Jesus meant, Jesus also believed in a coming day of judgment, an actual apocalypse, when the righteous would be rewarded and sinners would be punished. He seems to have believed that he would return during this apocalypse, though it's not totally clear. He speaks in the third person of a figure called the Son of Man, but it's very likely that he was referring to himself. The Son of Man could also be translated as the Son of Adam, i.e. the Son of Humanity. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus is called the second Adam or the final Adam. In the Old Testament, Adam was the original human, so you can think of the Son of Man as Humanity 2.0. Jesus saw himself as the first of a new type of human. A pretty substantial portion of the Gospels consists of Jesus warning people about this apocalypse. He believed it would happen while some of his followers were still alive. If you've ever poked around on conspiracy theory groups online, this will sound very familiar. Sometimes out of curiosity, I listen to conspiracy theory podcasts, and the notion that there is a coming time of judgment and revelation, probably within our lifetimes, but maybe not, is pretty ubiquitous, whether you're in the UFO subculture or the flat earth subculture or any number of other paranoia-infused mythologies. Obviously, Jesus was mistaken, as this apocalypse still has not happened. Still, even as I point out that he suffered under religious delusions, I also want to share something I learned from The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. A crisis is one of the easiest times to break bad habits and form good habits. In that book, Charles Duhigg suggests artificially inflating crises in order to tap into their power to transform your life. Jesus preached about a coming apocalypse when the wicked would be punished and sinners flocked to him to cleanse them of their sins and to change their habits. Even a white-collar criminal like Zacchaeus, sort of a Bernie Madoff of his day, returned the money to everyone he'd cheated, fourfold. Likewise, Jesus believed that powerful people were out to get him, that he was destined for persecution and death. This is another indicator of religious paranoia stemming from a possible mental illness. But I think of the famous quote from Joseph Heller's Catch-22, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after you. Like John the Baptist before him, Jesus preached against the rich and powerful and religious hypocrites, and like John, that put a target on Jesus' back. Many of Jesus' followers believed that he was prophesied to overthrow Roman occupation and usher in a new kingdom on earth where Jesus would reign as king in Jerusalem. And when Jesus said things like, the kingdom of God is coming, it made those political zealots salivate. And yet, after resisting his third temptation in the desert, Jesus was apparently not at all interested in political power. He was the king not of an earthly kingdom of riches and weapons, but of a spiritual kingdom, an imaginary kingdom in our way of thinking, and some of Jesus' flashiest public actions seem like absurd pranks designed to subvert people's expectations, poking fun at the entire concept of kings and emperors. 
He threw himself a royal parade, except instead of riding in on a war horse with a parade of armed troops, he rode in on a donkey while adoring followers proclaimed him the king of Israel. It's not clear exactly where the nativity story comes from, but I wonder if at least parts of it came from Jesus himself. Perhaps he so fervently rejected the true circumstances of his birth and accepted the narrative that he was the son of God that he chose to believe this more fairy tale story with hosts of angels and a bright star that defies the laws of physics and three wise men. Yet here too Jesus defied expectations. The nativity story contains many of the mythic tropes associated with the birth of a king or messiah, yet some of these tropes are inverted. He's born in a barn full of manure and full of noisy animals. The guests at the royal birth are some rando shepherds and three random astrologers who don't seem to know anything about the prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. And the actual earthly king, King Herod, the one with the actual political power, wanted Jesus dead. Back when I was a true believer, I saw this as another prank poking fun at kings and emperors, this one pulled off by God himself. Anyway, even if it's totally false, historically speaking, the story has Jesus' style written all over it, which is why I think it may have come from his own mind, one way or another. Jesus said, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. He said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, where the poor are rich and the rich are poor. The proud are humbled and the humbled are exalted. Strength is weakness and weakness is strength. So Jesus was bound to disappoint that politically zealous subset of his followers, while also pissing off the powers that be. Not long after this simultaneously triumphal and absurd royal donkey ride, we move into the end of the story, the Last Supper, his betrayal, his trial, and his crucifixion. I don't have too much to comment on there. I think the story speaks for itself, and there's not really much to say in terms of placebo magic. I will say, though, that in a twisted turn, Jesus' crown of thorns and the sign on his cross reading King of the Jews continues his upside-down lampooning of political power. As for the resurrection... Some secular scholars believe that the appearances of Jesus post-resurrection were visions experienced by his followers. From lurking around occultist communities online, I figured out that when people say that they've had a vision, sometimes they're talking about an actual hallucination, but most of the time they actually just saw something in their mind's eye, i.e. they imagined something, except that it didn't feel like they were the ones putting the image there. A strong mental image came into their mind unbidden. Of course, I believe it came from the subconscious. All that to say, when you consider the extreme psychological distress of a group of people who had left their jobs and families to follow someone they believed to be the Messiah, only to see that person brutally tortured and executed, it's not a stretch to believe that there may have been a potent combination of visions and shared delusions in the group. Later, as Christianity grew, the first generation of Christians seemed to believe that Jesus would return imminently in the apocalypse that he foretold. They didn't bother writing down the story of his life until they realized that they were very wrong about the timetable, hence the earliest of the Gospels, the book of Mark, being written 30 to 40 years after Jesus, when everyone's memory was becoming worryingly foggy and senile. The Apostle Paul never met Jesus in person, but he experienced a vision of Jesus after his crucifixion. For better or worse, Paul's letters formed the backbone of Christian theology. This theology reinterpreted Jesus' death, making his crucifixion out to be far more important than his teaching. According to this doctrine, called the sacrificial atonement, Jesus saved us from our sins by dying on the cross. I have a major problem with this. First, I don't think it follows from the text of the Gospels. Yes, Jesus believed that he came to redeem the world. And yes, Jesus believed that he would be killed. And yes, he believed that it was necessary that his death must come to pass in the course of the redemption of the world. 
But I think this was simply Jesus accepting what he saw as the inevitable consequences of his calling and his teaching. His culture had a history of killing prophets, the people who spoke out against injustice. Jesus spoke often about this historical trend, so it was clearly weighing on his mind. And John the Baptist's blood was still fresh. So I think Jesus saw his death as the inevitable consequence of sharing his message with the world, and he accepted that consequence. Likewise, he believed that his followers would be persecuted for spreading the same message, preaching against greed and pride. But there is no causal relationship between Jesus' death and the redemption he offers. Salvation is caused by following Jesus' teaching, not by the death and suffering of Jesus or anyone else. Just like how it glorifies Jesus' brutal execution, the religion of Christianity glorifies the suffering that its followers experience in day-to-day life, turning these so-called sacrifices into a source of identity and belonging and atonement. So Christians pat themselves on the back for suffering in abusive marriages, exploitative jobs, physical and mental illnesses, and so on, when a lot of this suffering benefits no one at all and could be avoided, making the world a better place. Jesus taught that if you follow the countercultural values of the kingdom of God, you will enter paradise. So if you're miserable, you need to stop and ask yourself if maybe you're doing it wrong. And while you're at it, ask whether you're spreading your misery to other people around you, which would mean that you're violating Jesus' golden rule. Jesus saw his death as inevitable, and he accepted it because he believed in the importance of his message, but I think there's no doubt that he would have preferred to live. I think he would want to keep helping people, and he would want to keep enjoying the company of his friends. Just look at his prayer of agony in the garden just before his arrest. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. I wonder what Jesus would have been like if he had lived into old age like the Buddha. I wonder how his teachings would have evolved when his apocalypse didn't come to pass. I wonder, too, if Jesus' message and movement would have been more successful if he had taken all this magical power that he had accumulated through his fame and charisma and authority and had invested that power into a symbol or an institution larger than himself. Jesus made himself the center of this movement and left it to his followers to institutionalize it after his death, when they had already begun to dilute and corrupt Jesus' teaching. Jesus believed that he was special, that he was the savior of humanity. But his endgame was that everyone else would be equal to him, beloved children of God, one and all. He wanted everyone to experience the love and acceptance that he found on that day when the heavens parted and he met his true father. So I think if we want to honor his mission and message, we need to stop putting Jesus on a pedestal. We need to stop thinking that he is the one and only son of God. We need to believe that it's possible for you and I to be the next Jesus and the next and the next. If a still small voice inside your head is telling you that you are beloved and special and that you have the power and the responsibility to help people, then you are a chosen one, a Messiah. As a child, Jesus most likely suffered in shame over his paternity, so he called this voice Father. When the deep hidden wisdom of your subconscious calls on you to help save the world, then you are an anointed one, a chosen one, chosen by your own mind. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. To which I say, okay, Jesus was deluded and self-deceived, showing many signs of possible mental illness, and he surrounded himself with enablers of his delusion. But within our mythopoetic placebo magic frame, Jesus was also divine. He was an incredibly wise and compassionate person who understood that it doesn't work to bully people into bettering themselves. You have to help them first experience forgiveness and compassion. 
He had a deep, intuitive understanding of ritual and magical authority, and he demonstrated that you don't need wealth or political power or fancy job titles to feel good about yourself. He did have an incredible amount of power in the form of celebrity, but instead of using it to enrich himself or exploit people, he used it to heal people's woes, to preach kindness and generosity, and to knock the rich and powerful and religious hypocrites down a few pegs. Jesus was a king, the king of an imaginary kingdom, where everything is upside down, the weak are strong, the poor are rich, and fools are wise. He may have been mentally ill, but we ignore Jesus at our own peril. No, the apocalypse that he prophesied is not coming. But you only have one life, and if you're wasting your life in greed and malice and addiction, then you're already in hell. Scale that up to a society running on greed and addiction and outrage, and you get hell on earth. In the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So I think in a way, the notion that Jesus may have been mentally ill, or at least very deluded about certain key parts of his teaching, actually enhances his message. In the upside-down kingdom, the greatest wisdom comes from fools. The Christian church ought to stop trying to pretend that they know better than scientists. Instead, they ought to more fully embrace Jesus' value system. No, the Bible's stories are not factually correct. They're silly bedtime stories. And bedtime stories can hold immense wisdom. No, God doesn't exist. He's an imaginary friend. And imaginary friends can be very helpful. Remember, you must humble yourself and become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right now, if you look at Jesus' legacy, it's tempting to conclude that his mission was a failure. He was wrong about Judgment Day, and while his following grew and grew after his death, his actual values were taken less and less seriously. So nowadays, Christian churches are full of the very same kinds of religious hypocrites that Jesus spoke out against. Many of his so-called followers slander his name by engaging in greed, racism, and all other forms of evil. What's more, they made the instrument of Jesus' torture and death the symbol of their religion, and they tell their congregations that they should congratulate each other for being miserable because that's their identity. I don't think Jesus would want anyone to be miserable. According to Paul, Jesus' followers collectively form the body of Christ. Whether you happen to be a fan of Jesus or not, whether you happen to invoke his name or not, when you embody Jesus' values, taking care of the poor and downtrodden, loving your enemies, being merciful and kind, then you metaphorically embody Jesus. You become his hands and feet and voice in the world. I believe this is the true second coming, if humanity can ever get it together. Jesus' kingdom will be established on earth when we all love one another, when we humble the exalted, and when we exalt the lowly, that is, the poor, the shamed, the mentally ill, the children, the bastards. Only then will Jesus' mission be complete. Only then will the Son of Man arrive on earth, the second Adam, humanity 2.0. And now it's time for Secret Spells and Riddlesome Rituals. Today, an arcane ritual to summon Jesus into your heart. So if you spend any time around evangelicalism, you might know the phrase altar call. It's when at the end of a service, the pastor calls for anyone who wants to say the sinner's prayer and invite Jesus into their heart. Really, this is just an imaginary friend. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen Buddhist monk, suggests that when you need help practicing mindfulness, you could imagine a helper breathing with you, like 
maybe your big sister. I sometimes do this with my imaginary friend Kevik, a little three-inch-tall goblinoid wizard who sits on my shoulder while I breathe. Likewise, you can invite Jesus into your heart, and then whenever you need to, you can ask him for help. He can help you to practice mindfulness. He can help you to change the way that you look at the world, to notice the good things in people and in situations. He can help you to be a decent person in tough situations. He can help you to feel more compassion for fools, children, the poor, your enemies. To invite Jesus into your heart, simply recite these words. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask your forgiveness. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. In your name, amen. Now that was adapted from Billy Graham's version of the sinner's prayer, though I took out the parts that I don't much care for, like the part about the sacrificial atonement and the part about making Jesus your Lord and Savior. Don't make Jesus your Lord. Follow in Jesus' footsteps to become a Lord of the kingdom of heaven and a Savior of humanity. Don't make him the hero of your story. Make him a wise mentor, an Obi-Wan Kenobi, that you can ask for help whenever you need it, while you follow your own hero's journey of symbolic death and resurrection. After you have invited Jesus into your heart, there will be times when you don't think you have the strength to do the right thing. So you want to sort of channel Jesus and let him take over your actions for a little while. So don your magical WWJD bracelet, and then simply recite or sing the following magic words. Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands. Because I can't do this all on my own. You can find the Placebo Magic Podcast and my poetry and other writing on the web at farmcodegary.com. Send your feedback to farmcodegary at protonmail.com and let me know if I can read your feedback on the show. Music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. You can support the show by giving us a review on your podcast app of choice, sharing an episode with a friend, or becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash placebo magic. Patreon supporters also gain access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus show. Remember, magic is a metaphor, and metaphor is magical. (laughs) 